The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. Good evening, anybody, everybody, and thank you for showing up. Since I'm not in New York City, you're all virtual to me which means I can't really thank you for being here. But whatever state you're in, whether it's geographical, mental, virtual, or otherwise, thank you and welcome. I truly appreciate your taking the time. Jisei's already introduced me. Um, I'm broadcasting from beautiful Santa Fe, and the background you see is not out my window, I wish. Uh, I will add one thing. I was Shuso last summer with the great support and kindness of this Sangha. The reason I mention that is that this is only my second Dharma talk, and I've sweated over it, mostly because I couldn't find it a title. It almost seemed that I was going to have to post it the way people do TBD to be determined or subject to change. And then I realized that that actually was the topic and the title. Everything is subject to change, of course. So tonight I'd like to offer some thoughts about change that have occurred to me over the last year or so, how we're subject to change and what that means and how sometimes we're agents of change through our Zen practice. Change has been on my mind quite a lot lately. Uh, 2023 was bracketed by two deaths of close friends, as well as some unexpected health changes. So I was keenly aware of the unraveling of parts of my life's fabric. That's often how impermanence feels, I think. It feels like a loss or like the failure of valued things to remain unchanged. It's as if change, which is really neutral, has decided to turn on us as individuals. I found myself preoccupied with the kind of impermanence that says all good things must end and the value of human work is nil over time and a lot of very pessimistic things, while the word squandered rang in my ears from the evening gatha. I might have comforted myself with the many sayings from all over the world about change. You know, the only constant is change or the French version that roughly translates means the more things change, the more it's the same old, same old. But instead, a happy coincidence got me going again on this talk. Having decided I was going to talk about change, I discovered that the study text for this practice period was being time. I'm not going to take that bull by the horns this evening, but let me be Dogen-esque. Change is nothing but being time. Being time is nothing but change. This being so, change is change, and being time is being time. 
I have no idea what that actually means, but it gave me enough of a laugh to get me working again. Change, of course, is not an exclusively Zen topic. It's actually the focus of many of the sciences. Calculus was invented to study change, and change is the goal of most applied knowledge from psychiatry to engineering. It can be fast or slow, it's scope fast or tiny. It can range from this morning's, uh, the cat changed her mind what she's going to eat again, through moderate size changes that we hate dealing with, like how many changes in the tax code this decade, to really national and global and planetary changes so large that we're at risk of missing them because of how they develop. All these scales are linked so that I'm pretty sure Gandhi's dictum, be the change you want to see in the world, covers both the personal and the global as one. I'd like to take you for a moment to a place where the scope and the majesty of geological change is really hard to miss the Canyonlands of Utah. I was there on a cross-country bicycle trip ages ago, not quite geological ages, but ages nonetheless. And I included a stop at Bryce Canyon. Assuming that the virtual background is, is working today, that's what's pictured behind me. Bryce Canyon is a place absolutely full, as far as your eye can see, of rock spires called hoodoos. They're eroded over millions of eons into wild shapes, multicolored layers that were once sand. They're derived from the wearing away of mountains and those aggregates coming off the mountains are solidified into stone eventually. So my 21-year-old self was standing at the rim of this canyon, contemplating these eternal witnesses to geological change and feeling a bit smug about my elevated thoughts. What I didn't know was I was about to get my mind blown, as we said in those days, because a perfect stranger just walked up to me at the railing and said, it's just like the Alhambra, isn't it? only upside down. <laughs> this uh, presumably stone bodhisattva ambled away and I stood there dumbstruck. And then like a verse to cap a koan, a sign caught my eye. It was posted by the park service in an unusually poetic mood. And it read, this landscape is constantly changing but at a rate too slow for humans to perceive. My mind was duly blown and my perspective shifted. And uh, I'd have to say it remains skewed to this day. A lot of us have difficult, if not unhealthy relationships with change and time, which is such a component of change. Um, so forming what you might call a healthy relationship with change is an important part of our practice. 
it doesn't require any grand theory of change any more than driving an automobile requires that you understand all its mechanics. It's been said that time exists so that everything doesn't happen at once and that space exists so that everything doesn't happen to you. Maybe changes like that, maybe not. But the more important questions are how aware are we of change? How do we respond to it? And ultimately, does it enchain or liberate us? Before going on to those questions, I just want to note how many of the core ideas of Zen are predicated on or defined in terms of change. I've mentioned impermanence and being time. Those are fairly close synonyms to change. And like everybody else, we usually use our own jargon rather than the word change itself. Impermanence, of course, states that everything changes. Karma adds to that a kind of judgmental appearance that actions in one time cause change in another. It really is more like Newton's third law because karma literally translated means action. And so essentially what the law of karma is saying is Newton's third law. For every action, there's an equal reaction. Some other concepts linked to change are interdependent causation, interbeing, Indra's web, any kind of concept of causality, of course, has to have change involved in it because ultimately everything changes everything everywhere all at once, like the film says. And like Neil Thiefe, uh pointed out, in his talk about his book, Notes on Complexity, recently, which I very much enjoyed. Also, the belief that everything is illusion comes in part from the fact that everything is changing. The fact that things are changing in front of us means that our perceptions are partial at best. And so they can quite logically be called empty, illusory, or even diluted. So my point with that um, detour into the <clears throat> relationship of, of words we use all the time in Zen discussions to the simple concept of change is that change is pretty much a root assumption in Zen and in Buddhism generally, it seems to me. It's not always discussed under its own name, but it peeks out everywhere as we consider the great matter of life and death, which is the ultimate study of change. So how do we deal skillfully with change? Are we subject to it, subjected to it, or the subject of it? Can we really be agents of change? Should we try to be agents of change? 
these questions are actually quite current in discussions of engaged Buddhism as Zen meets American cultural norms and changes in response. The same questions are raised in the well-known koan called Yakujo's Fox. At the core of this koan, an old man asks Master Hyakujo, I'm sure you all know this, whether an enlightened person is subject to the law of karma. In effect, the old man is asking whether a sage or bodhisattva or such like is subject to change. And whether if they're not subject to change, they can overcome it or control it. Kyakujo answers that such a person does not ignore the law and thus frees the old man from his karma, which has been being a fox for 500 years. And see how you like that if you have to suffer through it. Interestingly, the term subject and how you interpret that is central to this koan. Depending on the way we use it in English, it reflects whether a person is obliged, is forced, or is free when they do something. If you're subject to, that indicates a legitimate duty under a legitimate authority, like saying you're subject to the queen, or that violation is subject to a $100 fine. If you make it past tense and say that someone is subjected to, that refers to being forced, as when we say somebody was subjected to embarrassment or worse yet, subjected to torture. <clears throat> By contrast, being the subject of something, a sentence or a situation, means being the center and often the actor in that situation. And subjectivity takes this idea of individual freedom even further to the point that you can be so subjective that you're not connecting with reality at all. So paradoxically, subject can mean either lack of free will or nearly complete agency. So to come back to trying to apply this to our lives, with change occurring all around us, as it certainly is in this age, must you go along with it unwillingly? Or are you the subject who decides? This is the same argument in many ways that Christians have been having over free will for ages and ages and has many other parallels, um, far too many to, to try to go into, I think. <clears throat> Kyokujo's answer suggests that we can steer change at a cost, but that going with the flow is usually more effective. Don't ignore the powers around you, the forces that make up change and karma. Um, but some of the best things that humans have done have been swimming across the stream, at least, if not 
actually swimming against it. The idea that you should go with the flow, of course, is a standard teaching in, in Zen as well as some of the gentler martial arts, uh, well qualified by uh, deeper interpretations of it that I'm giving tonight. <clears throat> what I'd like to do is tell you a couple of stories about people responding to change, and I use that word in the broadest sense, in ways that I think offer lessons or fit into our practice. The first one's based in Aikido, which is the nonviolent martial art that I teach. My housemate, Tom, had just started practicing Aikido. He'd been at it for about three weeks. At that point, he was a wifty-looking, preoccupied postdoctoral student who spent long hours into the night in the lab and then would walk home in our sketchy neighborhood. So one night, he comes to the intersection that he usually passes and sees two guys on the opposite corner slapping each other and acting drunk and saying goodnight to each other. As Tom starts crossing the street, so does one of the guys. And his antenna go up and he says, they're gonna put a pincher movement on me. As they came at him from front and back, he waited till the last minute and sidestepped. I wish I had been there to see it because these two guys ran into each other, knocked themselves down in the street and Tom ran hell for leather and got away. <clears throat> and the best part of it was that they were cursing each other, not him. You were supposed to get that mother, you know. Um, Tom told me about this afterwards, and he was quite angry with himself because he hadn't used any proper Aikido. And of course, I told him that he'd accepted the fact of the event rather than saying this can't be happening, which is the worst thing you can do. He kept his balance. He did what he knew without trying anything too fancy. He didn't try to meet force to, with force. He did rudimentary but perfect Aikido. And those ideas that are behind what he did can be applied to many, many life situations, not just on the martial arts mat. My second story about living with change comes from Taos Pueblo. The Pueblo as a building is made of adobe, which is a very soft material. It's mud with some straw in it. And yet it's one of the oldest continuously inhabited buildings in the Western Hemisphere. It's been lived in for over a thousand years. By contrast, the European tradition of building uses the hardest available materials, bricks and stone and wood and iron these days, basically to armor our structures. It requires specialized skill and expensive machinery to maintain or repair those buildings. While at Taos, the village women scoop up the adobe mud that has washed off those walls over the past year or two, and using their hands, they replaster the walls. And that has been enough to keep Taos Pueblo 
solid for a thousand years at virtually no cost, very simple labor, no fancy tools. This is a great way, an exemplary way, I would say, to deal with change. And again, by contrast, modern concrete buildings have a lifespan of about 30 years. And they still require maintenance every five or 10 years. And when they do, you can be sure it needs a jackhammer, a skilled operator, and a lot of fancy glues to put the thing back together if it's broken. So like the old story about the bamboo and the oak in the storm, softer is stronger than rigid. <clears throat> That's definitely something to remember as an engaged Buddhist when we have to deal with some very rigid and defensive kinds of attitudes coming from people. This isn't a story, but I'm going to hold up what I hope you can see is a little puzzle, probably uh, familiar to you. It has 16 squares and one of them is missing. And I'm sure you all know the only reason that you can put the numbers on the squares in order is that you can move them. And that is only possible because of the missing square, the empty square. Um, so do a thought experiment with me. Imagine that this is made out of ice and that all 16 squares are there. If this is a metaphor for people trying to accommodate one another and live together, that's not a good situation at all. Nobody can move until somebody decides to melt. Now, they, these are very highly spiritual uh, ice cubes here and they decide to melt and they do it on their own but only one of them has to do it to make it possible for everybody else to move i don't want to beat a dead metaphor too far but i think that that's actually a very good way of understanding the very traditional belief in asia that by sitting on your sitting by yourself even in isolation, if you melt, if you change your inner rigidity, you improve the whole world. And I think that is something that uh, deserves remembering and that is a necessary part of trying to be engaged with making change in the world. Lastly, I've got a quote rather than a whole story. Um, it's about perfectionism, which some people think is the way to overcome the changes in the wild world. And it works the opposite way usually. But Winston Churchill, of all people, once said, to be perfect is to change often. I'd like to close with what I think is perhaps the most important reason to study change and work with it. And that is that the change in the world that exists without our help is the source of creative emptiness. Contemporary Rinzai master Jerry Wick connects change, emptiness, 
and potential beautifully and succinctly in his translation of the Book of Equanimity. Here's what he says. Our minds are changing, our bodies are changing, and our environment is changing. Nothing is fixed. This is emptiness, formlessness. And because the nature of reality is formless, it can arise in myriad forms according to whatever conditions are at hand. So because all things and causes and conditions are empty or boundless, they offer infinite potential. Because they can change, they're boundless and fertile. I'm going to close not with a gatha, but a quotation, which is rather surprisingly is from a French philosopher named Henri Bergson. He was active from the late 1800s to the 1930s. And what he said was, it's not that things change, it's that things are changed. Sounds very like Dogen to me. I hope some small segment of this catalyzes a little change for each of you. Thank you very much again. Mm -hmm.